garbage dump, oh garbage dump. Why are you called a garbage dump? Oh garbage dump, oh garbage All right, dump. welcome to Arm Love, episode two. I am here with Hello. Jamie Peck and J.G. Michael. What's up? J.G. Michael from Parallax Views, one of my favorite podcasts, if you haven't checked it out. Just want to, before we begin, just say what Parallax Views is? Uh, that's a very good question because it's quite amorphous at times. I basically interview various people, whether it be academics or journalists or just people from different walks of life, and I try to give a sort of perspective on things that maybe people haven't considered before. That's, you know, the short of it. That was a terrible description. That was way that's, too That's probably true. I don't know. I interviewed Bill Ayers once. That's cool, right? Weather Underground? Um uh, yeah, you I mean ba- basically you interview people who you do not normally hear on podcasts, writers and researchers and notable figures. I would say generally around questions of politics, international affairs, but also conspiracy theories and history and culture. So you've really talked a lot about what we'll be talking about today about counterculture of the 60s, uh reporting of it, media perspectives of it conspiracy theories about it, that sort of thing. And so I thought you were a perfect guest to uh, come on our second episode uh, about uh, the counterculture of the 60s. The first one, of course, we had the founder of the Diggers, Peter Coyote, and it was really an honor to talk to him. I really had a good time talking to him, and I thought the episode came out great. But I think afterwards I had a little bit of a regret because I wanted this to be sort of people our age looking at the 60s and unpacking it, comparing it to our experiences to some extent. And uh, with Peter Coyote, you really got like the, the boomer politics with all of its wisdom and naivete. And although I think there's some value in that, you know, I respect our elders. It also pissed a lot of people off, and I'm not sure... I really countered a lot of what he had to say with my perspective. Well, it's hard, you know. Uh, Boomers so... can be very intimidating. Uh, yeah, especially the voice of the Ken Burns documentary. Oh, wait, what? Yeah, he's, um, you know, I know him as like the founder of The Diggers, but he has this huge acting career, including narrating all of the Ken Burns docu- documentaries. He was like the father from E.T. He was in Sphere and all this stuff. I didn't really know too much about it. Damn. Okay. That part definitely went over my head. Uh, but like you didn't talk that much about it on the episode. So whatever. Uh, but yeah, I could see how that would be uh, kind of intimidating. His, I mean, just his voice alone. Yeah, he's got this really. I didn't want to challenge him too much. And uh, I think that came across. But, you know, I think it was a good start. Uh, but today we're going to be talking. We're, we're three millennials here. <laughs> this is a safe space <laughs> to uh, launch our generational warfare. <laughs> I'm ready. I mean, quick question for Andy. Why are you interested in the 60s counterculture? Because, I don't know, like I feel like the general consensus among millennial leftists such as ourselves, I hate that word, uh, I don't know, millennial communists, should I say? Is that better? I don't know. Uh, Is that it was kind of garbage, right? Like they failed to do, I mean, they failed to do the big thing, obviously. They failed at revolution, um, and, and I won't say the entire 60s. I think the, the Black Panther Party, obviously, was one of the shining examples of a party-like organization in this country that's ever existed. But uh, let's say the white counterculture didn't achieve much, and a lot of it turned out to be rad-lib nonsense. So why study the 1960s? Well, I think the Peter Coyote episode shows to some extent how that narrative gets told through the perspectives of the people who who did win in the sense that they 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 failed their revolutionary project but they went on to become you know influential people actors investors wall street people academics so yeah the i would say putting it on the race lines is pretty accurate that the the white revolutionaries who made it out they moved into the the position of becoming managerial or uh, like the the command class, you know. Like it was a huge generation, so of course they they go out to have like a large amount of power and influence. And then the the revolutionaries who tried to stick it out, you know, what happened to them? They ended up in prison. They ended up killed. 
Um, they got hooked on drugs for one reason or another. The The revolution failed in the 60s, yes. I would disagree that they fa- it failed on all accounts. You know, obviously, those years really changed the face of society, the face of culture. And you, you can't really say that it was better beforehand. I, I think that's a hard argument to make. Uh, so, you know, I don't want I don't think we ought to imagine turning back the clock and saying, let's get rid of feminism, for example. Let's get rid of rock and roll. Uh, let's get rid of acid. I think we have to have a little bit more of a sober analysis of the 60s and say, how are they wrestling with some of the same questions and same problems that we have today? What can we learn from how it played out? And it's difficult to do that because so many of the narratives of the 60s are told from this self-righteous, triumphant boomer perspective. Or, you know, I I think the other thing with the 60s is when people say the 60s, I almost feel like they don't mean, you know, the activists and the, you know, communal living. They're just like, oh, that means Timothy Leary, right? You know, like there's a very sort of. I think people think more of like a a cultural thing than a political thing a lot of times with the 60s. I mean, we talk about the political upheavals, but sometimes I I think that gets overlooked almost um, with the more like Timothy Leary, pop culture-y type stuff. Do you get what I'm saying, Andy, or am I off base? Well, I mean, there's no shortage of things to look at. um, And there are a lot of different ways to look at you know, leery and, and what we already know. And I think it's worth the challenge of, of trying to look at it from different perspectives, from a critical perspective, and not just saying, like, that's the cringe boomer. Fair day. enough. Fair enough. I mean, if anything, we can certainly learn negative lessons from the 60s. Uh, like, for example, how do we avoid being remembered purely as people doing cultural politics? Uh, and how do we advance the class struggle in a real way, which is always the thing I return to, you know, as a Marxist. Uh, <laughs> sure, I, sure. Uh, and there are certainly Marxists then who who uh, took that same position, and we can see how they failed as well. Yeah, and, and, and you know, how what happened to them later and how they feel today. I mean, I was just struck, okay, uh, at the end of the episode, when you asked him if he still has a sort of pro-revolutionary perspective and his answer was, you know, pretty disappointing to any pro-revolutionaries who exist today, including myself, right? But also understandable, considering what he's seen and just the way history has gone so far when people have tried it. But I think it stood in stark contrast to the answer given by uh, Bradley Green, the OG Black Panther that we had on um, to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah, because he very much still believes in the revolutionary project. And like, he agrees with us that we need to complete the revolution for Fred Hampton. And he's, he saw just as much shit, if not more than Peter Coyote did, right? Like he was friends with Fred Hampton when he was murdered by the FBI and the police. So I just thought that was an interesting contrast. Yeah, that's a, a good point. And I, I do hope we're going to have a Black Panther episode. Um, Bradley Green's got that book coming out that he mentioned on the show. So hopefully that, that'll be down the pipe for Hell us. yeah. But today we are, we're going to stay in a, a very white world. It is the world described in the book Mindfuckers, which J.G. Michael recommended. And it's a book about the Manson family, Victor Barranco's Morehouses, and the Lyman family. And these are a collection of articles from Rolling Stone in 71-72 that all tell uh, very similar stories about experiments in, in communal living gone wrong. Um, so, so, JG, why did you suggest the book? Uh, and uh, as we go through it, as we describe its chapters, what, what sort of relevance do you think we can pull out for today? Sorry, I just love the idea of communal living gone wrong. Like, this is what happens when 10 hippies pick to live in a commune, stop <laughs> yeah. being polite, and start getting murdery. Well, actually... The, the Lyman family did have a uh, a show interested in them called Real World in, oh in 1960. Oh, my God. Was that? Okay, yeah, yeah. My head so, just exploded. So then with regards to your question, Andy, I guess the crude answer to that is I'm way too influenced by like angry Gen X punk and post-punk and goth and industrial sort of artists and musicians who, like me, share a, a sort of like Lydia Lunch style – uh, anger 
towards uh, the failures of the sort of boomer counterculture. And uh, a lot of the Lyman stuff comes up in sort of, uh, you know, Gen X underground culture stuff, Feral House publications and whatnot. So I was interested in the, you know, Lyman family stuff uh, from a young age because I had a lot of like Gen X friends who were into that like underground, like literature type scene. And uh, Lyman comes up in books like Apocalypse Culture. So I always found the story kind of fascinating. And really, I, I think I'm just interested in the fact that we, we always talk about the 60s as, you know, uh, the summer of love. But r- really, you know, it's it's kind of the summer of rage. I mean, it's a time of uh, assassinations and, you know, uh, a political upheaval. And the 70s also had, you know uh, – a lot of turbulence as well with uh, the weather underground and whatnot. And it's really not as rosy of a picture as people think it is. And I also think that – I think it's interesting uh, with the Mindfuckers book, uh, that subtitle of it is called uh, what the, the Rise of Acid Fascism, I believe. And I, I think that's an interesting term because you know a lot of people are surprised uh, – that there are like fascists today, like neo-fascists, like sort of weird Adam Waffen SS characters that are like really into psychedelics. And they're like, well, Julius Evola and, and psychedelics, they go together hand in hand. Um, and I don't think that's as surprising as, as people make it out to be, actually. I, I think uh, there's been sort of fascist elements that have always been interested in uh, psychedelics or, or at least, you know, I, I would say – after the World War II period, uh, there's that author, and I'm blanking on his name, but the author of um, uh, the the author of Storm of Steel. He actually was friends with, uh, yeah, Younger was like close friends with Albert Hoffman, who, you know, basically discovered LSD, and you know, a lot of that underground industrial and goth culture ended up being very right wing. And, you know, a lot of those people were really into psychedelics as well. So I I think the acid fascism aspect really has always fascinated me because I think that's more of a thing than people realize. Yeah. I mean, Pharaoh House itself, I think, is an example of of that crossover. Well, Pharaoh House is uh, kind of interesting because, uh, I mean, they'll tell you this publicly. I mean, uh, the people involved with Feral House now will say that they kind of regret a lot of what they did in the past. Um, sort of like how a lot of us regret being, you know, edgelords back in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, I think that a lot of people did not really think through, you know, uh, oh, I- I'm like the edgy dark kid and the uh, ways that really right wing ideology can sort of spread through that whole I'm edgy and I don't really care what you think, screw political correctness type of, you know, mentality. And uh, the other reason I was going to say real quick uh, that the Lyman family interests me is um, – have you guys seen that that show that Vice is doing now called um, – I think it's called The Devil You Know. It's actually in its, I think, second season now, but it's all about um, modern-day 21st century cults. And I think cults are – more prevalent than we realize. Uh, and I, I think we see that in the case of QAnon, for example, uh, which, speaking of boomers, uh, QAnon seems to be a very boomerish phenomenon. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about QAnon towards the end when we talk more about like uh, bringing, bringing the question of cults to the present day. Um, let's do that later on. And, and thank you for telling me about that about Feral House. I didn't know that. So that's, that's good yeah. to hear. Um, well, it's it's like the whole thing with um n- not to interrupt you, but the, the there was that whole interview that came out recently with uh, Steve Albini, where Albini sort of reflected upon you know being the sort of edgelord guy that gave us bands like Big Black and Shellac, uh, that, that sort of like post punk noise rock scene, and uh it's it's an interesting read. I, I forget the publication behind it. I'd have to type it in real quick, but I, I think yeah, there's I a lot of self reflection. I mean, I don't remember where it was. <laughs> I just remember reading it and thinking, oh, good for him. A lot. I feel like a lot of these people in like punk or post-punk or industrial bands who kind of played around with fascist imagery or whatever, 
Um, most of them were not actually fascists. They were just mm-hmm. trying to be edgy, right? They were edgelords. And it was going on at a time when fascism was didn't seem like a threat to the average middle-class American, right? So I think maybe now that shit is getting crazier and far-right parties are growing in power and influence all over the world, uh, people are taking it a little more seriously than maybe they used to. Yeah, and I I was just going to add to that real quick, and I I don't want to go too off-topic with it, but I I think a lot of people try to use kind of shock imagery or playing around with things like... uh, the Lyman family, because there's actually a few bands that used Lyman family materials in their uh, like live shows. I, I know that uh, Godflesh, the industrial metal band, uh, actually did like a whole opener where they kept repeating one of Mel Lyman's uh, infamous poems, Declaration of Creation, which is a poem really obsessed with uh, fecal matter for some reason. But it's... <laughs> It's uh, it's interesting because I think at the time, a lot of people were bringing this stuff up as sort of a, a dark side of Americana to say, hey, you know, you want to be shocked? You want to see how things really are? Sort of trying to like shove people's face in what was seen as like, you know, the dark side of America that we didn't want to look at. But I, I think that has had consequences in some ways. But Andy – yeah, I mean, that's essentially what these articles were written to do is uh, it was in this time of this widespread backlash to the counterculture, which we, we talked about on our episode of, about Hey Joe, uh, this movie, this like hippie killing movie. So, and there are these articles about like, you know, everybody's kids dropped out in the 60s and then either dropped back in to some extent or probably went to live on some commune or experimental living situation. And so... Manson was really like the big media story that showed how dangerous that was and what a nightmare it was. Obviously, there's a lot of cases where that it wasn't. There's no cases of it being perfect and, you know, the Garden of Eden. But Manson was really like the flip side of how horrible it could be. Why don't we start off with that? Uh, Jamie, do you want to tell us a little bit about Charles Manson? Yeah, sure. So I feel like people know the basic facts because he is such a famous psychopath, but... For anyone who doesn't, I'm going to go over some basics about him before I move on to just some some analytical questions and comments that came up for me reading the book. So Charles Manson had a horrible, horrible childhood. Um, he was born to a teenage sex worker. His mom once tried to trade him for a pitcher of beer and his uncle actually had to go find the waitress and bring him back a few days later because this trade was initially successful. Maybe the waitress thought, I can take care of this kid better than this uh, drunk 16-year-old. I don't know. Um, but yeah, he wound up in a Catholic boy's home for a while where he was raped and abused, and this place was notorious for abuse. Um, I think he, he talks a little bit about it in this interview I saw with him later. And um, he, I mean, he says a bunch of crazy shit, but basically like, yeah, he was horribly abused. Um, He spent more time in prison than outside of it, mostly for petty crimes. He went to prison for pimping a lot, stealing cars, that kind of thing. Um, Actually listened to a true, a true crime podcast about this called morbid, uh, which has sort of a, like, it's always interesting to listen to a podcast that normies listen to and try to, like, <laughs> extrapolate what the the political valence is. And I'm going to say that these podcasts are not using an abolitionist lens. Um, but according to this uh, this podcast, one of the times they released him from prison, he actually said something like, I don't want to go or letting me out is a, mis- is a mistake. But they let him out anyway because they're like, dude, your time's up. Get out of here. Um After one of his releases from prison, he went to Haight-Ashbury, which, as we all know, was a real hotbed of 60s counterculture in San Francisco. Um, He frequented the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, where they were kind of experimenting on people by giving them LSD. Uh, The researcher Roger Smith observed, uh, and and, and Manson was one of those people. Uh, So... 
The researcher Roger Smith observed that he had a really abrupt change in his personality at this point. So a lot of people kind of trace his uh, his dark psychopathic tendencies back to this uh, because before that he was just a petty criminal. So after this, he started really getting into preaching his own philosophy, which was based on a real mishmash of boomery things <laughs> that were sort of prevalent at the time, including uh, Stranger in a Strange Land, which was a hippie sci-fi novel by Robert Heinlein that was popular at the time. Uh, of course, the Bible, really the OG basis to just create wild cults out of uh, Scientology, shout out to the Church of Scientology, which is now kind of in trouble. Sorry, guys. Uh, and the self-help guru, Dale Carnegie. And of course, the Beatles. Everybody, I mean, boomers love the Beatles. <laughs> what can I say? So, of course. they. I feel like uh, Get Back was trying to make us like the Beatles, and it really backfired. Oh, man. Oh, that's, that's a sore subject. I feel like I got to be careful what I say, because my boyfriend is like a boomer trapped in a millennial's body and he was like <laughs> so excited that i watched it while doing other things and he's like oh what do you think what do you think i'm like it's fine <laughs> like it's like it's like saying you like the beatles it's like saying you like a renaissance painting or something it's just like part of it's canonically good like i don't know what else to say about well, it Well, i like them before watching get Back. oh i see now i think i hate yeah because they're because they're jerks what did you think, JG? What was that? What did you think of Get Back? Uh, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay. I mean, I wasn't paying right, that close attention to it, but it was kind of cool, I guess. I mean, I think it's for people who are like really obsessed with the Beatles. Um, I mean, it was kind of cool to see these guys just like fucking around and jamming just like people do at band practice in any band. But the songs they're writing are like Beatles songs. Well, part of what was interesting um, about Get Back when you uh, compare it to Mindfuckers is there's a, a long scene where the writer is talking to Manson about his obsession with the Beatles and his theories about the White Album and Sgt. Pepper's. And Manson's like, look, if you look at what they're saying, it's very clear that there is an underground civilization in the desert. And John Lennon wants us to go there to, uh, you know, prepare for the race war. And he's saying it very explicitly. And if you if you look at the lyrics of Glass Onion, John Lennon is saying, like, look, I was telling you about this before. Here's a little bit more information. And he's, like, playing around with the, these coded messages. Like, he even says, like, here's another clue for you in the song. Um, but in Get Back, you see how they write the lyrics and they come up with like a jaunty melody and say a bunch of nonsense until they have a lyric, which they never hid that. And and Glass Onion was a parody of people like Manson who were like looking for clues and deeper meaning in the songs. But it was it's just funny to think that. Uh, and even Manson would say like, okay, it doesn't matter if it's nonsense to them; they're tapping into the mm -hmm. truth. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, like. That's something that really disappointed me about the Beatles uh, uh, in, in Get Back is they really had nothing to say and like no motivation to do what they were doing. It's just like, all right, we got to make some music here. Everybody's waiting for us to make some music. Let's do it. I, I, and they just suffered. I, through. I was going to say, they were idiots. <laughs> they were idiots I, I, of months. Yeah, they were they definitely were really idiots. good at making music and really just stupid about everything else, especially politics. Yes, I was going to say, I, I'll give one comment on the Beatles since I'm not that big of a fan. I always liked that uh, comment that uh, I think it was Paul McCartney made it. He said, you know, really, the, the monkeys were a better version of the Beatles than the Beatles were. And I guess that sums up how I feel about the Beatles. I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I, I never got into it. Fair enough. Um, I feel All the right. same way. Let's get but back. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's get back get to back uh, Los Angeles. To yeah. Charles Manson. So... Yeah, of course, the thing that he's primarily famous for is the Tate-LaBianca murders of 1969, when a group of Manson's followers killed a total of seven people over the course of three days, including the actress Sharon Tate, 
who was then married to Roman Polanski and pregnant with his child. And they did this for a really insane, stupid reason, right? So they did this in an effort to start a race war in which, okay, Manson and his family were going to go into hiding in underground tunnels. And then the blacks were going to rise up and kill all the whites. Uh, but at the end of it, the blacks were going to be like, we don't actually know how to run shit. So uh, Manson, he'd come out of hiding and he would be their king. And this is the this race war scenario was a phenomenon he referred to as Helter Skelter, of course, based on the Beatles song. And there's even a part of the book where I forget who it is, but he sort of speculates that if the next Beatles album had come out sooner, maybe these murders wouldn't even have happened because the next one was apparently way more cheerful. I don't know. Makes you think. Um, but this was seen by many, these, these gruesome and grisly murders, as the real death knell for 1960s counterculture. So a big question people debated at the time, according to the book, is, was Manson a hippie? <laughs> Which is like... All right. But before we ask that... Um... I, w- I have a big question for JG, which is, is this narrative true? Ooh. The narrative about Manson? Like what we just heard from Jamie. All of it. I mean, I, there's a lot of interesting theories about the the Manson murders. I mean, I know you guys have talked about, or, or at least uh, Sean and I have talked about that book. Uh, what is it? Chaos, I think. Right, Andy? Yeah. By chaos by yeah, there, there's all these theories about MK Ultra, and then you know I, I'm partial to the uh, theories that it was a drug burn gone very, very, very badly. Uh, that would be a whole show in itself to unpack that. But uh, Manson, to me, I think what gets really lost in the story, and I'm glad Jamie brought this up um, at the beginning of talking about Manson. You know, in a way. I see Manson and the Manson family as being, you know, a product of a of a society that, you know, often fills our, our children. You know, uh, America eats its young, so to speak, um, in the sense that, you know, Manson kind of grew up in prison culture and grew up around abuse. Uh, and then he became an abuser. And I think that a lot of his followers, if you look at their lives, a lot of them were running away from, you know, domestic situations in their home life and were, you know, had their own sort of broken aspects to them. And I I think uh, when you let people fall through the cracks, it's very easy for people to get involved in cults and, you know, basically become monsters. (laughs) Or even not just not falling through the cracks necessarily, right? Because... You know, a lot of these people were runaways from, quote unquote, good middle class homes. But there was something missing from this culture that was uh, driving them away. Like it Mm -hmm. was just fucking morally bankrupt. You know, these old institutions were breaking down religion, the family, patriarchy. These things didn't have as much of a hold on people as they did before, but they were not being replaced with anything. They were being replaced with this neoliberal nihilism that I think uh, drove people to search for community in some ways that ended up really going off the rails. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I think Manson even said something along those lines at the trial where he was saying, well, they're your kids. And I mean, of course, we, we should take everything Manson says with a, a grain of salt, right? But I mean... How did these kids come to be involved with Charles Manson, who, you know, seems like a, a burnt out, you know, beatnik that basically got involved with uh, the hippies and the young kids and, you know, everything went downhill from there. Why did that happen? And I think that's a question that's very hard uh, for a lot of people to reckon with. And I, I think it's also something we see with a lot of this stuff involving the 1960s and the 1970s. Why do people become involved with things like uh, Jonestown, you know, I, I think the reasons for that are often more social than we realize. And it's kind of a it's kind of a a difficult thing to look at because I think it requires a lot of social self-reflection. Well, I um, on the question of if he was a hippie, I, I think it's hard to argue he wasn't. Um, 
you, you said he was a beatnik. I don't I don't know of him having any connections to the beatniks, but of course the 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 beatnik to hippie uh, pipeline is pretty direct. Like um, that's one counterculture of the fifties that sort of transitioned to the one the one in the sixties, and the bridge to it is the civil rights movement. In in my opinion, um, white kids from around the country saw what was happening in the South saw the struggle for integration, the Great March on Washington, um, et cetera, and, and saw that there was this massive movement for freedom, and they were very inspired by it. And as white people always do, uh, they're very inspired by black struggles, black culture, uh, black politics, black thought, and wanted to be uh, use it as the basis for their own struggle for freedom, um, which... Uh, played out um, in the uh, the movement against Vietnam and uh, the creation of the new lefts, um, but also in this kind of like happening, this, these mass happenings of middle class white dropouts uh, from around the country going to Haight Ashbury, going to the Lower East Side, um, and several other like hip neighborhoods, and just kind of experimenting with life with with uh with free love free drugs um free food and everything like that and there got to, there was a sense around this time and peter coyote goes into this that uh we didn't need to wait to have a revolution um we were living the revolution day by day by freeing ourselves freeing our minds and the entire youth culture was doing this and things were moving so quickly between 65 and 68 that everyone basically agreed with this. You know, like, th- there was a reason why uh, the CIA and the FBI was so concerned <laughs> about what was happening uh, because millions of kids were leaving their homes and going and declaring themselves revolutionary in one way or another. And one of them was Manson who was this like incarcerated street kid proletariat or lumpy lumpen proletariat. And, um, it seems to me that through, uh, intense prolonged experiences with acid, um, became something of a, a guru of the counterculture and, uh, was able to bring a lot of people in around him. And he was just one of many, you know, there was, hundreds or thousands of these little hippie tribes and uh you know his went horribly wrong and the reason why i asked jg if that narrative was correct is because a lot of there's a lot of people out there as i'm sure you know who are somewhat sympathetic to manson and correctly like as this book uh points out shows that how the the victor uh, the vincent bugliosi account is really self-serving and propagandist and and not really accurate and they'll even go so far as to say that Manson was not a racist. He didn't believe in race war. The helter skelter narrative is based on one person's testimony or something. This book doesn't go quite that far. Um, and I don't have a strong opinion about these things. Uh, but I just want to throw it out there that there are different interpretations of what Manson thought. But I have no doubt that the Manson case um, is, you know, besides being very suspicious for, you know, all the reasons. Uh, described in Tom O'Neill's Chaos, um, was used in in this piece, uh, uh, these Rolling Stone pieces, certainly, as a way of showing how dangerous and how wrong it was to uh, drop out. Yeah, I, I think it was a combination of the the Manson, the, the Tate-LaBianca murders and uh, Ultimont, I think really, you know, that, that was like a cinder block, uh, you know, uh, being dropped on on this sort of counterculture, and then I think by the time you get to like the seventies and um, like the Kent State uh, massacre, I, I think you know you got Nixon and Law and Order out of the end of the sixties, and I, I think you saw the implosion of the sixties with the Manson family and uh, Altamont. Yeah, I'm um, I'm afraid that that's what's going to happen now, honestly. That's what's <laughs> going to come out of this renewed interest in um abolition and anti-police protests, but uh continue. 
I also have a response to Andy about the FBI. So, yeah, you say that the FBI was interested in this counterculture because it, you know, uh, I guess ostensibly posed a threat to the ruling order of things. But I think it's just as easy to take a look at how it all played out and come up with conspiracy theories about how, like, we know that the government played a role in spreading LSD around in, in these areas, right? Like, I, I could see how people could look at it and say, oh, this was an anti-communist plot all along because everyone just got high and gave up on anything resembling class struggle. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty typical narrative of, um, I mean, there, there's this theory basically that the hippies were an op. And uh, the the CIA most likely flooded America with acid. Uh, and they created all the rock stars people... at Laurel Canyon. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it can go it can go deep to the point where just, you know, Neil Young is an agent yeah. and Jim Morrison's an agent and oh all this God. stuff. Uh, certainly Timothy Leary and Ken, Ken Kesey. Um, you know, and, you, you know, know uh, Leary. Like, unfortunately, unfortunately, MK Ultra. you know, we know it exists, but we know very little about what it was. So we just don't have evidence. I for mean, this my, stuff. my read on it is that maybe they weren't trying to do it conspiratorially, but it did wind up functioning that way. So real quick, if I, if I could not not to divert from the MK Ultra aspect, but. There's a reason I said beatnik earlier, Andy, and uh, that's actually Manson's words. Manson – I think Manson would actually distance himself a lot from the hippies. I mean he was a bit older than some of the other hippies by maybe like 10 years, maybe a decade because he was born in 34. So like technically boomers are considered like I think uh, like the, the 1940s. But – um yeah, Manson is the the silent generation. Yeah, yeah, and and Manson actually said his direct quote was, you know, I was hanging out with uh, the beatniks in the fifties before these hippies were a thing. And, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, even though we shouldn't take everything Manson says, like like I said earlier, we should take it with a grain of salt a lot of times. I don't think that he necessarily completely related to all of these like younger hippie kids uh i think he may have seen people that he could manipulate and uh also people that he could um how do i put this in a lot of ways i think manson in addition to everything else i think he was kind of a pimp for uh you know people like the beach boys uh and that's one of the functions of the family in a lot of ways i think he manipulated a lot of young women and you know it's a really sad story yeah yeah uh, yeah, that makes sense. I don't think I realized that he was a little bit older than everybody else, but that probably played a role in how he was able to get all these lost souls to follow him. Um, I, w- I wanted to say a few things about the topic of race because it comes up in a lot of these interviews and he says a lot of really crazy shit and he says a lot of really racist shit, right? Uh, like he had, I mean... I don't think it's I think I think it's putting it generously to say he had a very non-materialist concept of race, right? <laughs> like a lot of what he believed about black people was really racial pseudoscience or even sounds like a religious myth of some sort. Like he really thought that black people were a different species than whites. Um oh, I mean according to people who were friends with him, according to his own uh associates who got interviewed in this book. Like um Page 87 let's see if i can bring it up uh charlie had a big negro thing his color philosophy was that the last black the black man was the last race to evolve and he was going to take whitey's place and whitey was going to move up to a more spiritual level the black man was here mainly to take care of the white man the police department the president would be a negro everything down to the waiters they were really totally to serve the white man Charlie said this is because they are stronger physically and more clever than we are, and they even have more love. They would enjoy to do that. He's completely against intermarriage. It kind of goes on. And, and I'm starting to draw a connection here between his sort of uh, bad, <laughs> bad ideas on race to the sort of way that his Eastern philosophy gets kind of twisted around, which apparently, as it turns out, is very easy to do, um, even... 
elements of Eastern spirituality that you think would be conducive to socialism, like we are all one, we are all connected, yada, yada. Uh, turns out that could just as easily be used as an excuse to kind of disconnect from any sort of material politics and even support a really oppressive status quo. Like on page 80, where he's talking about, uh, 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 according to Gary Stromberg, oh, yeah, he's, he's trying to say Manson's not racist, but in the process, he makes him sound pretty racist. He says, I never saw anything that would indicate Charlie had racist feelings. He had this whole thing about submission. He felt the only way to totally free yourself was to totally submit, and the freest person in this country was the black slave. He was in a submissive position, and if he could totally submit, he would free himself. When the master whipped him, if he could love that master and love that whip, who was the master whipping? But he used to get uptight because he felt the black man in this country was after the white man's ego, and he felt that was getting him nowhere. Like, like what do you guys make of all that? Well, I, I'm not gonna, certainly not going to argue that Manson was not a racist. Um, from all evidence, I can see he was, and... Um, the 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 way neo nazis were and continue to be so interested in him um is not a coincidence uh so i don't have much to defend him uh except for the fact that um i think uh his theory about race war um if if it's to be believed it is partially based on the idea that white people had treated people of color so badly for so long that it was inevitable that there was going to be a revolution against them because white people just no longer deserved to, to rule the world the way that they did. Um, and so that uh, combined with his ideas of um, sharing everything freely, which seemed to be a very sincere part of the Manson family, his uh, ideas against private property and his deep connection to the earth uh, you know, the idea of air, trees, waters, water, animal, etois, um, really does put him firmly within the hippie milieu uh, in a way that, to me, reads as sincere, although obviously there's a lot of other shady stuff going on. Um, but the circle around him, I think, truly believed that they were a part of this million-strong counterculture that was going to change the world and... Uh, they also believed, like pretty much everyone else did, starting at some point in 1968, that things were th- that the summer of love was not going to take over the world. Things were going to get very dark, very fast, and it was time to hunker down. So, their ideas were, you know, uh, the, the fact that people in the Manson family ended up committing these really horrific murders, um, perhaps trying to blame black people, the Black Panthers, perhaps in the process. We can't pretend that that wasn't excessive, even for the the, the normal racism of white hippies. But I, I think a lot of what they believed was in line with the general hippie vibe. Oh, yeah. I think it was definitely in line with the general hippie vibe. I just don't think that necessarily means much, <laughs> like, politically uh, or materially. Like, um, like you, you have a note on the sheet that the book kind of portrays him as something like a serious communist, uh, you know, using the evidence that he liked to give things away, like his guitars, or there's one story where a guy is like, well, you're preaching against uh, attachment to material things, but you've got this big fancy bus. And then he's like, oh, you want it? Here, I'll give it to you. And he like gives the guy the bus. And eventually the guy gives it back. But I, I don't think that means he was a communist. Like, I think these are, again, like the sort of individual lifestyle politics that don't, uh, don't really mean much. But I, I have a quote from the book where uh, someone compares him to Castro that I think is pretty funny. So I'll read that and you tell me what you think. So so Lance Fairweather, again, he says, Charlie was certainly a fascinating cat. He represented a freedom that everybody liked to see. That is why we wanted to document him. He really was an active revolutionary of the time in that area. Like Castro in the hills before he overthrew the government, Charlie advocated the overthrow of the government and the police force and everything. He thought it was all wrong. It was as simple as that. He wanted to do more than talk about it. But like so many revolutionaries, he really had no solution. And he didn't have the patience to really wait. 
Had he waited, he could have had so much more effect with his music. And I would say to him, <laughs> Charlie, you can do so much more with your music and with film than you can ever fucking do running around in a bus with your girls and preaching the stuff. And I'm like, okay, this is like textbook rad lib nonsense, right? Like he's comparing him to Castro, who actually did have a plan and ultimately was victorious <laughs> in Cuba to a guy who's like saying a bunch of vaguely radical things in music yeah i mean uh, also his music was really bad <laughs> so i mean he i guess like in the hands of brian wilson maybe it could have had had some life but in terms of him being a communist like i think to some extent if you live in a commune and you share everything freely with everybody and you're um opposed to the state and to capitalism, it, even if you're not a Marxist or an internationalist, you could argue that there's something communist about that in the small C sense. That's like maybe a, dis- a different kind of yeah. discussion than we want to have I'll right now. I'll call it anarchist. I'll, I'll give them that. But, but I think that the way the book um, or, or this article portrays him, they, there's, there's one point where they do something very telling, which is they say like when he's on trial, like this is a challenge for the criminal justice system. Because the criminal justice system wants to look at like a single act and a single motive for the act and the means for the motive as a way of proving what happens. But they say with with like a cult leader or a political radical, that's not so easy because it's it's more complicated than just a simple means motive execution. And so I think even if if we uh, see Manson as an op or a reactionary or a fascist or whatever, I don't disagree with any of that. He's portrayed here as a typical hippie revolutionary, and he's portrayed that way for a reason, and it might not be so far off. Yeah, again. What do you think, JG? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think people try to analyze Manson politically far too much. I mean, to me, he's a petty criminal that, you know, went from, you know, the, the poorer regions of the Appalachians uh, to California and you know figured out a grift uh you know that he could do with uh the, the beach boys and whatnot and getting all these women together with lsd and and the rest and uh i i think a lot of his beliefs don't make any i mean they don't make any sense i i think there's even a compilation video of manson interviews called no sense makes sense um <laughs> uh, but the you hallways know, I, of always, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all, always is always forever is actually like the only uh, Manson track I like. And that's not even him. That's the mm-hmm. Manson Family Sings album. But uh, I'm going off topic. Anyways, uh, yeah, Manson to me, I, I think people overanalyze him in some ways. I mean, my understanding was that a lot of his views probably came from racist family members that were pro-Confederacy. Uh, and then – you know, I think he develops other weird views over times, uh, and he's he's very incoherent. I mean, later in life, he would make uh, very, like, positive comments towards black revolutionary groups, um, but he's also this, like, weird racist pro-Confederacy guy. I, I just – I think people look for too much when it comes to what did Manson believe in politically, and I, I don't think of him as a communist by a – you know, I think that's a stretch for me, at least. I mean, or like a lot of people have a jumbled up, <laughs> jumbled up bag of political beliefs that don't necessarily make that much sense uh, or certainly don't map neatly onto the left right spectrum. But um, I guess I guess I'm a little salty still because, <laughs> OK, story time. I met this sort of uh, really, I guess she was she's more like a Gen Xer, but she's definitely a hippie sort of a majestically aging hippie that I met in Hawaii who um, I just assumed maybe that she was younger because she looks great, but um, she was a bit older than me. And uh, she was saying stuff like, we all just need to love each other and we'll solve all the problems in the world. And I took I took that as my cue to tell her that uh, that's why I'm a communist. And she really did not like that. <laughs> at all and but like i was describing what i believe and she like she like agreed with some of it but then whenever i brought up the idea of struggle uh class struggle struggle against oppression whatever whatever she's like well that's just negative vibes man like why do we need to struggle that's like it's causing negative ions in your body and it reminded me i'm like oh yeah just being a hippie doesn't really say anything about 
what your politics are either way. And I feel like people still struggle to learn this lesson. Like all the people who are surprised that Kristen Cinema would be like a right wing piece of shit because she's bisexual and she like dresses like a theater loser. Like uh, when when are you going to learn, guys? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, like it makes me think of that Timothy Leary quote. And I, I there's a lot I like about Leary, and I you know I credit him with getting me to think about things a bit differently. I always liked his line about uh, you know question yourself and think for authority. That was one of his slogans, but. That line he had about turn on, tune in, drop out, uh, that takes on a much more sinister tone if you're uh, politically inclined towards leftist causes, especially the drop out part, right? Because, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah, no shit. I, there's one more point I wanted to hit on Manson, if I may, before we move on. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I read... Every story about crime I read through an abolitionist lens because this is just something I've been really steeped on, steeped in, especially over the past year. And I think if you look at it one way, the Manson story uh, could be evidence. uh, Manson could be seen rather as one of those sort of extreme outliers that abolitionist discourse doesn't want to deal with. Right. He was this remorseless, criminally insane psychopath who just has to be institutionalized uh, for the rest of his life involuntarily. But all of the factors that made him this way are also things that abolitionists want to change about society, right? Like, I don't think he was just a bad seed. Uh, if, if he had been cared for properly, I don't think that he necessarily would have gone this way. Um, it, it also shows that prison does absolutely nothing to rehabilitate people or stop them from wanting to do bad things or stop them from doing bad things. Right. Because they let them out. I'll go a step further. I'll go a step further with that. I think at a certain point, a lot of Manson's antics after the Tate LaBianca murders and after going to prison, I think he wanted to stay in prison. I don't think he ever really cared much for all the parole hearings. I think he just, he was probably more comfortable there in a lot of ways because that's, where he, you know, a lot of his life was spent there even before, uh, you know, the Tate LaBianca murders. So he, he literally said, I'm a dangerous man at his parole to his parole officers or he, to, sorry, to whoever was doing the parole hearing. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, to me, the last thing I'll say about Manson is Manson, like a lot of true crime cases to me. I think people mystify serial killers way too much. They're usually – they're not like these, you know, like dark, uh, like boogeyman character. A lot of them are like really actually much more pathetic than we want to uh, admit. Like I, I think we romanticize them too much in a way that gives them more power, right, um, within our imaginations. I, I think Manson is just a – pretty sad person that did horrible things and in a way i think people in a way the the issue i have with bugliosi is that bugliosi created this narrative that he was almost like a sorcerer or like some you know uh wizard like shaman and really i don't think it's that i think he was just a manipulator and a pimp and a con artist and a, just a, a rather seedy you know person that i would not want to be around but you know, that's not as interesting as, you know, uh, making endless movies about Manson with, you know, uh, Phil Anselmo and, you know, uh, actors like Steve Rills back, uh, back in the, the 60s. There, there's been so much done about Manson, but I think in a way it, it, it all glamorizes him too much, if that makes sense. Do you get where I'm coming from on that, Andy or Jamie? Well, uh, one more point I want to say before we wrap up on Manson is that I know that JG, you've been following very closely and covering on your podcast the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. And reading about the Manson trial in this book, I couldn't help but think that there's a certain spectacular similarity between the Epstein arrest and the Maxwell trial and the Manson story, where, you know, it's no coincidence that Epstein was being charged. What, what was it, 2017, 2018, all of a sudden, and now Maxwell is, uh, is like, c- continuing on after Epstein's mysterious death, I think that for whatever reason, there needed to be an example of the, the depravity and the corruption 
um, that goes on in the elite circles as a way of spectacularizing it and hiding its banality. And so I think the same thing with the, the way Manson was used as a way of warding off any sort of affinity with the counterculture or with uh, communal living, the Epstein and Maxwell trials are a warning shot against a certain kind of um, political class subculture as a, as both a scapegoat to say like the, these people are why everything's wrong and we need people who aren't pedos with a pedo island as a way of defending the ruling class in general. That might be a bit of a stretch, but I just think that the way that these trials are so spectacular and people are so interested in them, there's a similarity and there's a similar narrative building going on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, w- I would definitely agree with that. And I, I worry, I actually worry about with the Epstein stuff too. I, I think this is almost an inevitability in some ways, but I, I think people, I, I dread when we're going to get the the Epstein Maxwell movie inevitably. It's like I, I don't know. There's something weird about how we end up putting these really horrible, vile uh, characters uh, on a sort of. It's almost like we put them on a pedestal, you know. Like there were all those complaints. Oh, yeah, absolutely, there were all those complaints about that that Ted Bundy movie. I think with uh, who was it? like Zac Efron, you know. And I I kind of agree with those complaints because you know at the end of the day, I think Ted Bundy was kind of just an asshole Republican who had issues with women. Uh, there's no, there's not much more that needs to be added about that. And I, I think in some ways we, we almost turn them into like weird folk heroes, these people. Yeah. Well, I, and I think that's going on with Epstein as well in the, in this like kind of twisted way. How, how so? Can you elaborate on that real quick? Well, I mean, look at a, what's upon a time in Hollywood. Um, th- the first time you meet a member of the Manson family, it's this, what like 15 year old girl named kitty or something and she's picking up brad pitt and like uh trying to give him a blowjob in the car and trying to bring him in bring him to spawn ranch and like get him in in some way and she's portrayed in the movie as being very hot and you're supposed to especially like men are supposed to kind of like be challenged with like what would I do if this 15-year-old girl was in the car with me? And then you side with Brad Pitt, like, oh, Brad Pitt is right for telling her no and then, you know, kicking everybody's ass at the at Spahn Ranch. Um, but, of course, it's not always so simple. Like, obviously, Quentin Tarantino is sexualizing this young girl and portraying her as sexy for a reason. And the story of Manson, and I'm sorry to say, also the story of Epstein, is very titillating to people. Mm-hmm. And even if they're totally not pedophiles, not into teen girls, they are attracted to the concepts in this way that's not purely like a passive interest in the facts of these cases of abuse. Because if you were just interested in men abusing women, you would be a feminist. That is so true. (laughs) Like, why aren't they talking about, I don't know, rape culture and patriarchy in the same story? Seems kind of important. I don't know. Yeah, you know what? You know, some just, people are. Just but. in that regard, what's what really strikes me about the way people talk about Epstein is, uh, you know, people will say like, oh, well, the Intel connections or, you know, uh, people will start going on about like, what if he had connections to the Mossad? And I'm like, well, what about his connections to, you know, predators like Jean-Luc Brunel? I mean, you know, I, I'm very focused on, on Jean-Luc Brunel's connection to it because I think uh, – Focusing on the intel stuff is fine. I'm, I'm not saying that none of that's real. There's also sometimes people ignore with the Epstein stuff the role of international modeling in uh, in abuse. Things like uh, Brunel's connection to all of this and also MC2 modeling. I, I don't think people should overlook that. And I, I mean Brunel in particular because I mean in France, I mean he he's a huge figure within the modeling world. I mean he's – gone to jail now for his abuse of underage girls and i i don't think we should overlook the sort of banality of it all um it's you know not all of it is uh cia intelligence and you know there's other aspects to it so moving on from manson i want to talk about another family much much lesser known from the east coast from uh boston 
the Lyman family. And a, a very famous quote um, applied to them is, uh, I think uh, Jim Queskin said this, was that Manson preached peace, love, and murder. We don't preach peace and love. <laughs> so um, please join us in the bonus for part two of Armed Love 2, where we talk about the Lyman family. Uh, we'll talk more about the Manson trial and its connections to Epstein. And we'll talk about cults and acid. Should we not do acid today? Uh, are millennials into cults today? We'll talk about all that uh, on the other side of the paywall. See you there. It's not where you're not free. Your home is where you can be what you are. You were just born to be Now they'll show you their castles And diamonds for all to see But they never show you their peace of mind Cause they don't know how to be free So burn all your bridges Leave your life Strong in your mind, and anyway you might wonder, you can make that your home. And as long as you've got love in your heart, you'll never be alone. Just as long as you got.